but Tucker may prove that it is worth the risk. Whether you hate the guy's guts or not, whether you you know hate his politics or not, he's a sort of trial balloon for this new uh, economic paradigm. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, July 3rd, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I talk about the Puck scoop that Tucker Carlson is raising capital to launch a new media company. Does Tucker have the magic touch and the audience connection to build a modern media enterprise after leaving Fox News? John and I also talk about the evolving media narrative around Hunter Biden and whether it will matter with normie voters in 2024. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Monday, everybody. It's obviously Media Monday. I'm joined today by John Kelly. I hope everyone out there is has the day off. I know a lot of people don't, but you're enjoying the long weekend. John, what are your 4th of July plans tomorrow? Oh, we're around, you know, one older kid to sleep away camp, uh, have the younger kid. So barbecue, fireworks, yada, yada stuff. I love three-day weekends. I was just telling Bob before our producer that uh, four-day weekends always um, begin to remind me of how much work needs to be squeezed into the short week, not to be a downer here. But um, oh God. But we're, we're around, Peter. Tell me about your much more exciting social life. There's a tradition. The 4th of July is a big deal in Katie's hometown of Manhattan Beach, the South Bay generally. For people not from the Southern California area, Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach, Redondo Beach comprises the South Bay beach communities. Everyone is out all day long. People are posting up on the beach. Yeah, that's the uh, White Claw might, capital might, of the world, I think. It, it might be, actually. Uh, my one note is that there's no fireworks. And I, I learned this a couple years ago when I was down there with Katie and her friends and her family. You have to like sort of look down the coast. And I think Palos Verdes does fireworks. I was really offended by that. I mean, I love fireworks. My uncle Brian, who you might have met at my wedding, my mom's brother, 
I nicknamed him when I was a kid, Uncle Bang Bang, because he would always set up fireworks uh, in Chevy Chase <laughs> every 4th of July. And I'm just a big fireworks aficionado. And I, I took it as a personal slight from the South Bay that they don't allow fireworks. Uh, there are probably some, uh, you know, fire considerations <laughs> maybe in California that don't Oh, we've elsewhere. got to move but... you to New Jersey, buddy. You'll see there's no, uh, <laughs> you want to see a fireworks show. There's nothing illegal over here, pal. You'll uh, you'll get your money's worth every, every night for the four day weekend. Well, producer Bob and Dylan and I the other day were talking about how in LA generally, there's just fireworks all the time. I mean, yeah. scoundrels just set them off willy nilly all summer. <laughs> so like we'll be in Venice and just hear some fireworks going off during COVID, you know, in the neighborhood, it was a popular game was fireworks or gunshots. Um, <laughs> that's sort of faded. It's most, it's mostly oh, fireworks God. in Venice. Anyway, I want to get into some media stuff and not my uh, personal uh, observations about the fourth. So John, I want to talk about Tucker Carlson a little bit and Dylan's reporting about his new media plans, possibly a new media venture. I also want to talk about the Hunter Biden piece that I wrote last week and sort of the media narrative around Hunter and Joe Biden. But first, there was a really interesting tidbit, perfect for Media Monday, inside Bellany's newsletter, what I'm hearing the other day. And basically, CAA is apparently shopping a limited series based on that Tim Alberta profile about former CNN chief Chris Licht, that really devastating mm. Very long piece, which could be a novel in itself, given its length. Matt smartly wrote, HBO and Warner Brothers probably will not be bidders for this uh, CNN (laughs) drama. But you had a funny exercise, which was, I think we should cast me, you, and most importantly, Dylan. Who are going to play us in (laughs) very, very small parts in the Chris Licht movie? Well, first of all, let's rupture the market a little bit. You know, I think Dylan is also uh, working on some potentially valuable IP in this space. So maybe we'll have, um, we'll ensure that our our friends wow. at WME um, are also, you know, thinking about this as, as they certainly are. The Atlantic's not the only lone wolf. CAA represents the Atlantic. But our exercise here was to cast the, the larger Lick Cinematic Universe. Uh, Matt did a great job casting... Licked and Zucker and Don Lemon and he even took a stab at Dylan. Some of this was crowdsource and Puck Slack. But I wanted to cast you and you were going to cast me and then I've got a, a bonus track here. So I don't think you're going to like either of these, um, but they would have been very favorable uh, at a certain time in your life. Choice number one, if he's available, is going to be, um, speaking of uh, Katie's hometown, it's going to be Ben McKenzie, uh, formerly of the OC, <laughs> n- now a, um, a sort of steward of the crypto genre. And if Ben's not a genre and a exactly anti crypto anti anti SBF genre and if he's not available which is which is possible I want to put out a feeler to none other than James Vanderbeek now I, I know that uh, that doesn't initially come to the tip of people's tongues right now it, it's it's been a, a, a Tough 15 years for Vanderbeek, but I think that uh, Vanderbeek as Hamby in a larger licked ensemble that encompasses all of Puck would be uh, incredibly compelling. And it could be his version of like John Travolta in Pulp Fiction, you know, where it kind of reignites a, a popular imagination with his talent. Maybe. Vanderbeek wears necklaces and is an RFK Jr. fan uh, at the moment. That's an interesting move. I don't really have a celebrity look like. I've thought about this over the years. The one I would root for, even though he's way more handsome than me, also a callback to a different time, is Ed Burns. I mm. wish I want to be like a, like a handsome, like 
gravelly voiced Irishman uh, yeah. like him, but it's not there for you. Not sure, I see. John, it, but, okay, yeah. I also I also talked to some of our colleagues here. Kieran Culkin was floated <laughs> for you. Who said that? Oh my god. I, Alex Bigler said that one. Oh, <laughs> she's going to get it. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Bigler. And maybe Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, uh, all right. Oh, now, I, now we're talking. I have a couple for you. One, another callback. A younger Jeremy Renner. He looks a little little haggard oh, these days. But I hope that's Jeremy not a Renner. short joke. No, no, no. Oh, is he short? I didn't know that. Yeah, he's 5'2". Um, the other are, these are a couple Gen Z references you might not get. Uh, but one is Finn Cole, who is uh, mm-hmm. one of the younger actors on Peaky Blinders. Very handsome. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And the other is like Will Poulter, who's also a Gen Z heartthrob right now. And I feel like you could, if you look up Finn Cole, Google him, there's a picture of him wearing like a sort of like J. Crew button down, sitting in a director's chair with a tie, and he's got sunglasses on. And he looks exactly like you would look at like a Sun Valley meeting. So I think that could be <laughs> that could be the move. Don't worry about it, Peter. I stopped paying attention after Jake Gyllenhaal. So, uh, <laughs> and, and I'll let Alex Bigler know who I think will play her. And one other bonus track is um, Mutual Super Friend uh, Sean Mills' new home bar I, I frequented this week uh, would be played by none other than Matthew Fox. In the extended, extended universe, uh, Matthew Fox, for those of you who don't know, was the... the Leading light in Party of Five, and actually a, a wide receiver on uh, the Owen Forty Four Columbia Lions football team from the late eighties. Uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, but um, I'm sure we put everyone to bed. People who are, who are tuning this out somewhere in Southampton or uh, you know in, among the Sconset set. But uh, thank you for allowing us to get that out of our system. <laughs> uh, Sean will love being tagged with even more of a Gen X patina. <laughs> so Dylan wrote a piece about. Tucker Carlson, we've talked to Dylan a lot about Tucker doing the show on Twitter from his farmhouse in Maine, which I learned from Dylan's yep. piece, and Fox going after him, saying it's a breach of contract. Dylan's also hearing that Tucker is building his own media company, or at least talking to investors about building a media company. He's done this before at The Daily Caller, and I don't know the financials of The Daily Caller, but I assume he made some coin off that. What is the lane for Tucker Carlson and a media company here? Because, I mean, the Daily Wire, I think, is an extremely compelling and and successful media company. Whatever you think about their politics, I mean, they are distributed. It's a combination of subs and free distributed content. They make a ton of money off advertising. They're really good at talent development, blah, 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 blah. They make a ton of money. Glenn Beck's The Blaze is sort of in that similar space. I assume Tucker's new venture would be some kind of digital first video, audio, Breitbart style clickbait. What do you think? This was really interesting to me. And actually, I feel like it was a sort of underappreciated scoop from our pal and partner, Dylan. I was, um, certainly I I don't share Tucker Carlson's politics, but I am viewing this mid-career transition he's making with acute interest for a number of reasons. Um, Namely, that he's potentially sort of crafting the paradigm for stars of one medium to recreate their star value on another one. But here are the things that were most interesting to me on, on a top line level. First, I think 
I'm glad to hear actually that he's raising money from outside investors. Uh, and I, obviously, I have no rooting interest in this. But when he was fired, and he seemed to immediately want to get on Twitter, it, it just seemed like he was sort of acting upon this revenge fantasy of, of of trying to make sure he didn't lose his audience. And it seemed very desperate and defensive to me, and a potentially losing battle. And I don't think Twitter is uh, necessarily going to be a meaningful platform for him. But it's definitely not an economic platform. Like it is, there is a ton of value leakage on Twitter. The views are transient. The CPMs are low. Uh, you're you're renting an audience. You're not buying it. As the Buzzfeeds and Vices have shown, it's it's not a very good place to build your media business. Uh, there are many other platforms that you want to build on. So I thought it was interesting that he was raising outside capital. Also thought that, as you point out a moment ago, there are a number of media businesses on the right that have raised a lot of money in recent years and have grown considerably. I think the Daily Wire is $100 million plus in revenue. Mm-hmm. That's what they announced a, a, a year ago. Um, so I'm sure that they have a valuation between 500 and a and billion dollars, and there's very little outside capital. It's a lot of the, the founders' money. Also, interestingly, when you're raising money for these kinds of businesses, and again, I don't know who the money's coming from, and he can self-fund a lot, but these tend to usually not be institutional investors, but wealthy private citizens who have an interest in this. They want these products yeah. in the world, yeah. which means that Tucker is going to do well in this arrangement. And it, it, it was for a very long time... Uh, a very underinvested space. You know, uh, we were part of the generation that couldn't believe that Breitbart existed. But funnily enough, those were kind of romantic, you know, days of of yore where there was only one Breitbart. Now there are a zillion Breitbarts and and there's Mm -hmm. almost over investment in the space. And one of the challenges that Tucker may have is that um, he's competing with more and more entities. You know, he's sort of adjacent to things like The Bulwark and, and Barry Weiss's company. And I assume that the business is going to be a mixture of proprietary content, speeches, appearances, productions. There's a path for him to make a lot of money on this and you know, revert to the original point. It'll be interesting to see if this is a paradigm that people like Don Lemon or Rachel Maddow or one day Anderson Cooper or Wolf Blitzer, I don't know, if, if they sort of follow this too, where they realize they have this singular voice, they have a huge following, they're spreading their influence on a platform and while they're collecting a very nice, you know, seven to eight figure salary, that actually there's more money in the next thing. And there is a tipping point that we mm-hmm. are encountering in that medium. And it's coming pretty soon where the future is going to be worth the risk. So far, it is not worth the risk. But Tucker may prove that it is worth the risk. Whether you hate the guy's guts or not, whether you you know hate his politics or not, you know, he's a sort of trial balloon for this new uh, economic paradigm. This is something we're doing at Puck. And like, I mean, not to toot our own horns as being from a slightly younger generation here. But like, I feel like a lot of my peers in media kind of started to understand years ago that the journalist slash creator, (laughs) content creator, that's what we call ourselves now. They do have these opportunities to reach many different audiences and monetize them through a variety, you know, just a flywheel of different kinds of content, speeches, podcasts, books, shit, screenplays, like whatever. And at the center of the spokes is the journalist. And I do feel like the TV news reporter anchormen types uh, and anchor women are like, mm-hmm. have been kind of slow to figure this out. And it's not until they leave that world where they are highly paid and they're fluffed by their agents and their bosses or whatever. And they think they're the center of the universe uh, even though fewer and fewer people are watching, once you get out of that little bubble, you start to realize there are many, many opportunities yeah. to create a direct connection with an audience 
to build off of that, the one you already have, and to monetize it. And Tucker's, again, I think like is the perfect example of somebody like that. But yeah, like Ben Shapiro and, and Glenn Beck are another examples of these things that they already exist. One of the funnier uh, elements of all of this too that, you know, I think we know, and you certainly lived in these trenches, TV, <laughs> TV, especially cable news, can be insanity inducing. The medium requires a certain level of vanity, and then the, the fluffing around it you know, usually takes that to a sort of unimaginable apotheosis. But at the end of the day, you know, TV is an expensive medium. There's extraordinary capex that goes into the piping and the getting, you know, the bundling and, you know, somehow porting somebody into your living room every night. But even though we often denigrate the ratings in the show, what you see is the relationship between talent and a recurring audience, right? So Tucker had millions of people every night who wanted to have a conversation with him. Mm -hmm. And he needed, he believed he needed Fox News to do that. There are many off-the-shelf technologies now, Stripe, Substack, you know, a, a zillion others that, that don't come to mind at the moment, but, but exist out there. They're slightly smaller, Beehives and other, that allow him to have that conversation on a recurring basis. That is the essence of media. It is the recurring connection between sort of subject and object. And it's very inexpensive across the Rubicon now. And he should be able to do it. And I was actually, uh, obviously, I uh, again, I don't agree with this politics and think the guy's, uh, you know, batshit crazy. But early on, when he went right to Twitter, I thought to myself, oh, God, just thinking about our industry, oh, God, if somebody who was the leading light of this industry was too dastardly to actually set up his own shop and believe in his magnetic quality with a certain audience on a recurring basis, then who else is going to help, you know, create and facilitate the change? And so on some level, you know, the words I never thought I'd hear myself saying, I'm, I'm actually happy that he's doing this because I think that it will fundamentally expedite, get us to the next chapter, really, of this long sort of media transition that we're undergoing here. Yeah. One more thing to mention before we go to break. I mean, Tucker will be able to raise so much money because this kind of conservative media content is part and parcel with conservative politics, like the Mercers, for example, funded Breitbart and also helped right. Trump get elected. And the kinds of people who, the kinds of very rich people, right-wing people who give money to super PACs funding their favorite presidential candidate are also willing to write big checks to create, you know, media companies like this. I mean, a lot of conservative media traditionally, and I, I mean, I'm going back to like National Review, you know, it's yeah, like sure, funded sure. by big check conservative donors uh, and on the left that, too by the way that this is no on the left on the left for sure but like in, it's just in a way that doesn't happen with mainstream media john i'm gonna take a quick break and come back and talk to you about a fascination of right-wing media which is hunter biden Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug 
for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life welcome back to media monday everybody i do want to correct the record on one thing john uh, i actually went back and scanned bellany's piece about this chris licked screenplay idea going around the jake gyllenhaal idea was actually for dylan and not oh. you uh, not to bring your ego down a little bit, but but Google the Google the Zoomer actors I told you about. They're very handsome. You will appreciate it. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal actually could play Bigler in this, but uh, oh, I can see that. I'll, I'll I can see that. I'll, 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 yeah, that. I'll take it up with her. Um, we'll see if they're available. Yes. Yeah. Give her a call. And see if they're available. So uh, Abby Livingston and I on Friday's podcast talked about how House Republicans are thinking about the Hunter Biden scandal slash scandals. There's obviously multiple House committee investigations with subpoena power into Hunter Biden and his business dealings. You know, Abby and I had a really rich conversation about this in part because she knows the House inside and out. And she sort of made the point that a lot of House Republicans and not just the the Looney Tunes ones are frothing at the mouth over this thing. Like they think this is a real opportunity to scuff up Joe Biden heading into 2024. But, you know, I still continue to think this storyline 
is confined to Murdoch media, you know, aforementioned Daily Wire, Breitbart sort of corners of the internet. I think the mainstream press is starting to talk about mm-hmm. it more. And I wrote about this in the piece two Fridays ago after the DOJ plea agreement came out. There were more sort of bits and pieces and chum thrown in the water about texts from Hunter to a Chinese businessman, et cetera. And all of a sudden, the White House press corps was asking the White House press secretary about this on a summer Friday afternoon. And not just the people in the back of the room, like Peter Baker was throwing questions about, is there a conflict of interest with Joe Biden? And so that jumped out to me. We saw this in 2016. The book I referenced in my piece, Network Propaganda by three Harvard researchers is great. And it talked about how right-wing media aggressively, but slowly pushed these right-wing stories into the mainstream press in a way where, you know, you had 60 minutes talking about, like interviewing Peter Schweitzer about like Clinton corruption. And, and all of a sudden it became acceptable to talk about these questions about Hillary. I still think that Biden doesn't have the same issues when it comes to like trustworthiness that Hillary did. And so I'm skeptical that he can be tagged with this. Polls show that most Americans think Hunter Biden's business dealings and challenges are his own and not related to Joe Biden. But, you know, I'm curious, like from your perch, again, not you're not in the political weeds like I am, but like, are you seeing more and more mainstream coverage of Hunter Biden or just sort of like the same? You know, I think that this definitely opened it up. The legal troubles are legitimate. And you and Abby made a very good point, And you made a great point in, in um, Hunter Splatter Analysis, which is a fabulous piece for those who have for some reason neglected to read it thus far. The Democrats would be going crazy if Don Jr. were in a similar pickle. And I think that this is a legitimate concern. It's a, it's a legitimate headache on the left. Impeachment fever is very real on Capitol Hill right now. And there is a patented sort of, you know, from 50 years in the making, I mean, can you imagine, uh, truly Watergate's been with us half a century now, ability for lawmakers to just use investigations to beget future investigations. And I think that McCarthy's already gestured that he's looking seriously into a potential Merrick Garland impeachment. You know, you could see how this just becomes a sort of rolling tumbleweed of political magnitude that begins to just become more and more and more unpleasant. And Hunter Biden is a unfortunate guy. He's made all kinds of, of really tragic mistakes. And I don't think that the Biden's oh shucksism is going to get through, which is a, a, you know, a point that you made in the story. And I think we're, we're coming to terms with now that he's allowed to love his son. He's allowed. And I mean, I can't imagine how painful all this must be on a personal level, right? Like no, no one would, would wish this on their, on their worst enemy. But it's such an extraordinary distraction. It's so likely, as Abby pointed out in a, in a piece she wrote, to lead to, um, to become a distraction, you know, maybe even next, next debt ceiling season. And I, my mind keeps turning back to this Doug Sosnick memo that came out last week that really does underscore this growing anyone but Biden and Trumpism that seems to be amplified in the electorate now. As voters, and this is a sort of Peter Hambyism, but as voters begin to tune in, and very few are now, but as they increasingly begin to tune in, um, we are already seeing real fatigue where many normal Americans and many, you know, highly politically uh, educated Americans are just thinking, Jesus Christ, like we have to do this all over again with these two guys? There's got to be something better. And I was having coffee in D.C. the other week with a very, very, very connected 
democratic person from the sort of Obama Biden sphere. And it was clear to me that they were so dug in that it had to be Biden, that Biden, only Biden could beat Trump and that, and that only Biden could win in 2024. And I just thought to myself, this doesn't seem like outside the box thinking. This wouldn't be permissible in any sort of business that you just leaned into your best defense as your best offense. I think the mood is changing, but, but you're the expert political analyst. I am not. So tell me I'm wrong. In some ways, the dynamic you just mentioned about there's got to be someone better reminds me of Bush and Gore in 2000. Obviously, the 90s was a different time. People were just sort of like generally meh. History had ended. I guess we're just going to go about our sort of late capitalism and not care about who's running for president. The stakes are certainly higher in politics these days. Many more people are engaged than they were back then. But yeah, I mean, I think you see some of that with RFK Jr. Not that he has any shot. You know, he popped in the polls a couple months ago, like 20 percent among Democrats. That's just softness for Biden. You know, that's that's some name ID, particularly among black and Hispanic voters who hear Kennedy when a pollster calls. But and like among the crunchy Erewhon wellness people out here in L.A., you know, you see like random Instagram story posts and like overhear people talking about RFK Jr. And it's like, we just need a different option than these two. But that does represent, I think Democrats are starting to kind of scream about this, that the Biden administration is not talking enough about their accomplishments and they're too complacent. And Mm. Trump can win. DeSantis can certainly win. I I think, you know, the more Democrats are just kind of checked out, that's a problem for Biden. And they have to figure out a way to compete in a news environment that, by the way, is like moving so fast. And there is a really interesting... Reuters Institute, an Oxford study. This is my dorky media shit that came out a couple days ago. And it talks about the rise of the passive news consumer versus the active news consumer. And so in the year 2020, according to this this survey, 35% of people, and this is not just in the US, but it's just sort of a general signal about like people's engagement with news. And I think you see this reflected in the decline in ratings, not just at CNN, but also MSNBC and Fox compared to like a few years ago. Like people are tuning out after 2020. 35% of people said they were active participators in news in 2020. And 41% said they were passive consumers, meaning they don't participate really in the news cycle. They kind of incidentally come across bits and pieces of news. That passive consumer number has risen to 47%, almost half of news consumers now are passive. Like they don't, they're not really tuning in. They're not super interested. The number of active news participators since 2020 has dropped by like almost 15 points, 20%. Hmm. That's basically saying only the hardcore people are tuning in. And most people, even in 2018, 2020, when politics was like the thing to post about and talk about all the time, people aren't doing it the same way. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is Democrats. And I think, you know, Biden has to figure out how to punch through not just in this whole like fractured media environment where people aren't watching tv news as much and they're not certainly reading the new york times or just looking at their texts and their group chats and social media it's also the fact that like people like will see a piece of information about politics on the internet and just sort of like look away or swipe out and i think that's a really big challenge for democrats because i don't think republicans right now are doing the same thing it's interesting that Biden is really backstopped by a lot of political professionals. And I don't, I don't mean like long timers. I mean, the Donald and Rochetti Dunn class, this is a group of people who've made millions of dollars in, in the private sector. 
and now are sort of responsibly holding the scaffolding of Biden. And I'm not accusing them of, of anything. And they're, they're certainly civil servants in this regard. But it does, I don't know, cynically, it does make you wonder. Everyone's got an agenda here. And it's clear that the, the Biden momentum is fading to me in, in a way that is almost reminiscent of what we saw in early 2016 with Hillary, where you, you know, coastal elites didn't realize how unpopular she was until they saw the, the rise of Bernie. And I think that there's now meaningful uh, vulnerability around Biden. And I hope that the, uh, the pros around him can come up with a response that isn't simply made out of some sort of McKinsey lab, because I think that this Hunter problem is real. I think it will lead to real political challenges. And it's going to absolutely hog up the machine. And the guy does not move as swiftly as he once did. So he, he seems more vulnerable to me than he has in a long time. Yeah. And again, I, I talked to uh, Abby about this, but if it's Trump versus Biden, you know, Trump was and his people around him, including his family, you know, profited <laughs> in a gross way off of his presidency. So that the waters around the swamp and corruption are kind of neutralized if Biden runs yep, against Trump again. That's fair. Um, if it's DeSantis, like or another Republican, it, it becomes easier to run against Biden and sort of throwing the Hunter Biden. Stuff oh, boy. In a way, totally. in, a way in a way that like could peel off swing voters. I just don't think people see Biden as more corrupt than <laughs> Trump at this point. And my one of my favorite parts of the piece I wrote was a former Obama person texted me and they were like talking about the idea that Biden was like suddenly left the vice presidency and started finding sinister ways to make money, you know, with Hunter. Being in your late 70s feels like a weird time to start the grift. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I still think people do think that around Biden, you know, that he's a, that he's a decent man despite his challenges. Oh, that's, that's a fair that, point. That's Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's right. Let me leave you on one thought, which is that yeah. at the end of the game, this is all a math game. I'm not a political yeah. analyst, and, and I'm sure, you know, people can take this with a grain of salt, but... Biden turned out more voters than anyone ever in an American election, right? Tr Trump is in second place. The, the difference between then and now is that there was COVID and people could mail in ballots. Uh, could could Trump amass that kind of enthusiasm, even with all his legal headaches, even with, with the DeSantis challenge and all of that? I think it's possible. Could Biden do it absent COVID? I wonder. Could he also do it absent the ability to really galvanize the sort of swing suburban female audience, that the mom audience that broke for him if indeed some of these edge issues like Hunter become real? I don't know either. And I think it's there's a there's a mass enthusiasm game that he's got to win. And I, I just don't see the path right now. That's a good point. That election was happening during COVID. And I think we forget about how distinctive that was and yeah. different and all of the dynamics at play. John, Thank you so much, man. This was a long media Monday, but you know, it's a holiday weekend. I feel like we can indulge in some fun and I will continue to Google your lookalikes on the internet for casting. Yeah, let me know what you find. Thanks, Peter. All right, Happy holiday. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.